We've already studied how that in the Old Testament, God's primary focus of reaching the world uh, was through the nation of Israel. And then we looked at how that that kind of transitioned. Once Israel rejected the Messiah, we saw how that uh, it moved into the New Testament church as we know it today. And uh, last week, we hopefully learned a great truth. We We examined what I call really the heart of salvation in the Bible, and that's Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. 11, 12, and 13. Now, we learned a great lesson last week, or hopefully we learned it, and that is the fact that the proof of your salvation, the fact that you're saved or you're not saved, is not really based on what you say or what you claim. It's not based on what your mom and dad does with the Lord in their life or what you do or don't do, but rather based on the aspect of repentance but rather how you live your life after you're saved and understanding that the moment you got saved, you were, you were uh, going to be transformed from what you were to in what God wants you to be. One of the key verses, and we use this verse a lot around here, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which simply says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We talked about the deception of the devil and how he's out to deceive uh, us into a false security. We looked at the three aspects of salvation that you really need to know. Remember now, we're doing this for a couple of reasons. Uh, Obviously, I'm teaching the passage in Romans, so we want to understand it correctly historically, how it applies to what Paul is doing. But also, you know, in our own ministry. We've seen the hand of God in this ministry for uh, ever since we started. God has given us just about everything we've ever needed. There's never been something that we had to have or we needed that God didn't come through for us. And, uh, and God has built a, a, a contingency of men and women in His church who understand the message of God and understand the, the mission of God. And as you've grown spiritually through all the different things that we have done, Many of you now are right at that point in your life, and many of you are right behind those people who are ready to get yourself ready to be used of God in, in this mission, uh, Lord, that God has given us here in this church. And we've talked about how that you need to understand when you're dealing with somebody about their soul, you need to understand that they need to understand about repentance. That repentance isn't the fact that you're sorry for what you did, though you need to be sorry for what you did. But more important than that, repentance has to do with the fact that you're willing, because you're sorry, to change your direction of life and go another direction. And I talked about last week how that when I got saved, the lines were very clear. You didn't claim to be a Christian and still do the things of the world. You understood that there was a new lifestyle, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, and yes, old things are passed away, and all things have become new. We talked about what it means to believe in your heart under God's righteousness. Talked about how that Christ was that righteousness, and what that means as far as believing what he did for you on the cross. We talked about what it means to confess with your mouth. How it's a picture of opening up your very soul to the Lord Jesus Christ as you understand Uh, in your heart and you understand that you're making a life commitment now from from where you once were going to where God wants you to go. You know, I hear people all the time, and it's a great thing today, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it. When you start witnessing to people or start talking to people, one of the things that people come back with you, at you with, is the fact that, you know, (laughs) famous verse in Matthew 7, I believe it is, where it says, you know, you're not to judge. Judge not, least you should judge. 
And, of course, that's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, and it does say there that judge not least to be judged. My answer to that when somebody gives me that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that he that is spiritual judgeth all things. I'm not to judge people, and I never do. I'm just basically preaching to you what the Bible says. The greatest judge in your life will be the Holy Spirit of God. I can preach a message, and by the time I'm done with that message, by the time I'm halfway through that message, you know already if you're saved or not, or if you are saved, you know already if you're doing what's right or not. I don't have to say a thing. The Holy Spirit of God does that. That's why the Bible says that men don't like to read the Bible in the book of James chapter 1, because the Bible, the Bible says it's like looking into a looking glass. We all like to, you know, think we look one way, but when you look in the mirror, it may not, you know, that old mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all type deal, you know, and you get yourself all ready and get yourself what you've appeared in your own mind is exactly the way you want it, and then you look in the mirror and you see that it's not exactly the way you want it, and you wouldn't dare go out looking like that. Most women, and it's not a bad thing, but most women, when you first get up in the morning, you, you take what you look like when you got up and what you look like when you show up to work are two different worlds. <laughs> Most guys are, too. I mean, let's be honest. And the bottom line is this, that there's nothing wrong with that, but it makes my point. When you look into the mirror, it really shows you who, who you really are. And the mirror of the Word of God, that's what it does. Bible says, he that is spiritual judges all things. I don't judge people. And you don't have a right to judge people either. But you do, as a Christian, have a right to judge the things that they do as they line up to your life. Either you accept them or you don't accept them. Now, let me tell you why you don't have to judge people, especially in the New Testament. Because the Bible, uh, a person claims to be saved, and they, we all know what the Bible says. Uh, in, a, in an environment where the Bible is preached and the Bible is taught, you don't have to, nobody has to point a finger at anybody and say, well, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. It's obvious to everybody around simply because once we know the biblical principles, the things that you do that don't line up to the things the Bible says, you judge yourself. And, uh, you know, one of the great ways to, that I've always looked at is a great principle in the Bible uh, found in Matthew 2, which it simply says, not Matthew chapter 2, but Matthew also, uh, I think it's in chapter 7, it simply says, by their fruits you shall know them. And uh, we, know, we know that with a Christian life there should, be, there should be some things that are different. It just goes without saying. Now the fact that we live in a Christian world today where everybody wants to have one foot in the world and one foot in with God, I'm sorry, uh, you know, that may be the way the Christian world looks at it, and that may be the way that many churches look at it, but if you're honest with the Bible, what is the point, really, what is the point of becoming a Christian if it isn't going to change you? I mean, it's just that simple. What is the point of getting saved in the first place if you didn't have to get saved from something that was bad? And that is the whole aspect of salvation. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where... Uh, you know, a dead apple tree in your backyard in February, or if it's dead in the summertime, you can want it to bear apples. You can, every morning you can say, oh, tomorrow it's going to have apples on it. Oh, next week it's going to have apples. You can wish all you want that it's going to bear fruit. But you know what? It's never going to bear fruit simply because it's a dead apple tree. And salvation is something that when you and I get it, it changes us. It changes us. You may not know everything about it at the time that you need to be and understand, but immediately, the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, there's going to be an adverseness to things that before there was no adverseness to. 
And it's just part of that transforming process because, simply put, a transformed life is hard to deny. Now today we're going to move on to the next section of Romans chapter 10. And uh, notice we're breaking this down into sections so you can get it into your Bible and makes it easier for you. But we're going to look at verses 14 and 15 today. And uh, this is a great passage here. It says in verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, Father, we thank you for today. We ask you, Lord, to give us what we need today. These are good people, Lord, and we love them very much. And, uh, Lord, I'm thankful for the ones that have committed themselves to the work of this ministry. And, Lord, uh, we just thank you, Father, that in Christ Jesus, uh, Lord, uh, that we're all one. There's no black, there's no white, there's no red, there's no yellow. We're all God's children, and because of that, we're all in His family. And uh, we just need to, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we need to be laborers together. And Lord, this church is built on that concept of the oneness of God's people, that within this body, we are all equal, we're all the same. It doesn't matter how much money we make or how much money we don't make. It doesn't matter where we were born. It doesn't matter what color our skin or what, whatever about us, Lord. When we got saved, we all became part of God's family. And from that point, we are laborers together in this work. And Lord, you've called the New Testament local church into existence. You gave it the greatest Christian that probably to ever live, the Apostle Paul, to define it and lay it out. And help us as your people today to learn these great truths. Because, Lord, I know I speak for myself this morning, and I know I speak for the majority of this church, if not all of the church, that we want to be found faithful in these last days. We want to do it right. We want to do it by the book. We want to do it the way God intended for it to be done. And, Lord, to whom much is given, much is required. So, Lord, help us today. Help us to understand these great truths, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, so far in chapter 10, if you've been taking your notes, Paul has systematically laid out the aspects of a New Testament gospel going to the Gentiles. We taught in our first lesson, we talked about uh, the book of Acts, and I told you how that God had prepared servants and prepared sinners. And we looked at that and saw how that, that uh, really was the key to this whole thing. Then we saw in verse 4 how that Christ was the end of the law. And we talked about how that the law was done away with when Christ came and kept the law for you and for me. Then we talked about and defined Old Testament salvation uh, uh, under the law versus New Testament salvation under grace and truth in verses 5 and 6, and we looked at that. Then we moved into verse 8, and we talked about how that God made the Word of God available uh, for salvation, that He actually gave us the Bible, how He brought it to us. And then in 9 through 12, we talked about the basic fundamental heart of it all, the process by which man and a woman get saved. And we did this from a couple of angles. We did it because of the fact that uh, uh, I want you to understand as a, as a person sitting in this room uh, under the preaching of the Word of God uh, what Romans chapter 10 really deals with in perspective of your whole Bible. But at the same time, I want you to understand that someplace along the line, if God does in your life what He wants to do, I guess I should say if you allow God to do, He'll do it. It doesn't matter where you'll let Him do it. God wants to take you and use you, and you need to know these things because the purpose for you and for me, well, we're going to see that today. 
is to be able to bear fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we talked about how important it is to understand repentance, man's heart, and the confession of his mouth. Now we've come to verses 14 and 15. And we see now how God planned to get the gospel uh, to the people that needed it. Now in these verses we see the process that God has for us. Now these two verses, and maybe you've picked this up already, and I've t- we've talked about this before, but I'm going to say it again because there's a lot of new people here. Now these two verses are built around four questions, if you haven't seen that already. There's four questions asked in these two verses. And these four questions is what our message is really going to be built around today, and they're really what the book of Romans uh, in chapter 10 is built around when we get to this point. Now remember, we've seen every aspect of salvation. Now today, we're going to see the vehicle. We're going to see the vehicle by which God wants to get the gospel out to the world. Now, I, I, I said this before many, many times. There's some things about the Bible that bother me. And I'll just be honest with you. And I, when I say they bother me, it doesn't don't bother me because I'm, a, I'm, I'm worried about them not being true. They bother me from the aspect of that I think many times... There's more to the Bible and our accountability than we think. And the thing that bothers me about questions, and I've looked at this for a number of years, the thing that bothers me about questions in the Bible is simply this. If that book is the book that God claims it to be, and that book is the absolute infallible Word of God in every way, shape, and form, and if the hand of God was in that book by design and everything, even the punctuation and even the way the thing is set up, then that means that the questions are in there and are just as important as the statements in the Bible. Now, the problem that bothered me with questions is this. If that book is what God says it is, and He asks them some questions, somebody's going to have to answer those questions. Over my lifetime, I, 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 once I saw that, and this has been a number of years ago, I, once I came to full understanding of how the Bible was truly God's Word, and I began to look at every jot and tittle in it as, as from God, then I began to go down through it, and I began to look at it. And you know, I, and many of you know this, because we've talked about it before. You realize the first thing I did was go back and find the first question in the Bible. I figured that if questions were important, that the first question would probably worth something. And boy, was my, my IQ went up about 10 points. You know, the first question in the Bible wasn't asked by God. The first question in the Bible was asked by the devil in Genesis chapter 3. The first question in your Bible was asked by the devil. The second question asked in the Bible was found in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9, and that was asked by God. You see, when you come and you come to the point where you see these questions, the first question asked in the Bible was asked by the devil. And the first question the devil asked was simply this. Did God mean what He said when He said it? Now, you know that first question sets the theme for the whole Bible? You know, that's really the whole reason we're here today? Either He meant what He said or He did. Now, with me, I'm a kind of a black and white guy. I, I, don't, uh, I don't have much middle ground on things. Sometimes I do. But the bottom line is not when it comes to the Bible. In my personal, humble opinion, either the Bible is the book that God claimed it to be, infallible, perfect, written by the hand of God, inspired by the breath of God, containing every thought and every and the intent of God's heart, laid out in a book that I can read, or it's the biggest forgery that's come down the line in the last 7,000 years. To me, it's one or the other. A lot of preachers and a lot of scholars will get up and say, well, the Bible is kind of the Word of God, or the Bible contains the Word of God, 
I, I think that's middle ground stuff. I don't believe the Bible contains the Word of God. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I don't believe it contains the Word of God at all. I believe it is the Word of God. I believe it's unlike any other book the world has ever seen. And because of that, questions are important. And the first question asked in the Bible was asked by the devil, who is going to be asking you that question all down through the history of the Bible, and that is simply today the same question exists. Did God know what he meant? Did God know what he was doing? Did God mean what he said when he said it? And I believe that he did. You know the second question in the Bible? God asked that question. And that question was asked by God. You know what he asked? He asked Adam. Now Adam was now in a fallen state. Alan had, uh, Adam and Eve had sinned and they'd fallen from God's grace. And now they're in there and they're about to be expelled from the garden. And now where they used to have fellowship with God every day, now they're hiding from God. And God comes down and asks Adam. The greatest question, that, the first question God asks in the Bible sets the precedent for what God does all the way down through the Bible. He's saying to Adam, Adam, where art thou? You know what Adam, God wanted Adam to say? He wanted Adam to say, where, are, where am I? I'm fallen now. I disobeyed you. I went against you. Where am I? I'm dead in trespasses of sin. That's where I am. Those first two questions form the whole concept of the Bible. One, devil comes in and messes up God's plan. God always comes in and fixes the plan that he messed. See? You know what the new first question in the New Testament is? Oh, it's in Matthew. First question in the, found in the Bible was asked by the, by, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. And it's asked by the wise men. And it sets the theme of the whole New Testament. You know what they ask? Where is he that is called King of the Jews? Now those three questions show you how the Bible is built around the first time you find it, the second time you find it. Questions are important in the Bible. Over the years, I've found a set of questions that every unsaved man and every unsaved woman is going to have to ask. You know what I believe the great white throne judgment is going to be? I believe it's you and me uh, standing there with Christ judging the unsaved world. You know what an unsaved man and woman does? And I don't know if we have any unsaved people here this morning or not. But I know if you are unsaved and you're not saved and you know you're not saved, I guarantee you your whole life is built around getting around the question that God asked Adam. And sometimes it's a smart aleck answer. God will say to you, where are you? And you'll say, oh, I'm around. You know what? You always can tell where a person is with God by the answers they give them. You don't see somebody at church for four or five weeks and you call them on the phone or you finally see them someplace. You say, where you been? Oh, I've been, I've been around. You know, I've been around. I tell you, right now on the spot, there, let me translate that for you. I'm not where I need to be with God and don't ask me anymore. Say, I don't want to talk about it. And that's the way we are. And many times God's Holy Spirit will say to you, Bob, where are you? Tom, where are you? Larry, where are you? Mary, where are you? Jane, where are you? Where are you at today? And our answer as an unsaved person will be, what business is it of yours? Where am I? I'm having a good time. What do you want? Say, but God always keeps asking that question. You know why? Because of the judgment, the great white throne judgment, every unsaved man and unsaved woman is going to stand before God, and in that day, God's going to ask some questions. And you know what? There will be no blowing him off then. See, you blow him off now. Unsaved people blow him off all the time. God people blow him off all the time. But in that day when you stand, an unsaved man or woman stands at the great white throne judgment, there'll be no blowing him off. You know what Job said? Job said, who can contend with God? That's a question. Who can contend with God? Really? Nobody can contend with God. Job said in Job chapter 9 verse 3 that you couldn't answer God one question out of a thousand. 
You know what Job chapter 38 verse 2 says? It says, God speaking to Job, he says, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I demand of thee an answer. You know what the great white judgment's going to be? God's going to demand of you an answer. You know what that, that answer he wants to hear? He wants you to show him now how your righteousness and your good works and all the good things you thought you could do that you didn't have to put upside the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to explain to him why you should get into heaven when he's got a perfect son over here who died for you and he wants you to explain your perfection. It's going to be a rough day. There are going to be some questions asked. There are going to be some questions asked. And yes, there will be people looking for answers. I guarantee you. I told you before over there in Job chapter 26. I've laid it out. In fact, i got a whole message on it. The six questions God's going to ask at the judgment seat of Christ. You see, unsaved people have their questions. You and I have our questions. And in Job chapter 26, you find six questions. And those six questions, as far as I'm concerned, the only one that can answer them are a Christian in the New Testament church. And personally, I believe that those are the questions that you and I are going to be asked that we're going to have to give answers to at the judgment seat of Christ. Two judgments in the Bible. We studied it on our chart. You and I, judge, if we're saved, we get judged at the judgment seat of Christ right there while the tribulation is going on. Unsaved people get judged at the great white throne judgment right before the whole thing is cast in a lake of fire. Questions are important, and questions bother me. Because I've learned this over the years. If I've learned anything about the Bible, what I believe about the Bible is this. If that's God's book, if God's asked the questions, somebody's going to have to answer them. And you're just better off to answer them today. Get them out of your way. Now, here's the four questions that Paul asked about the gospel. And this is called the gospel of peace in, in, in verse 15 of Romans chapter 10. Now, the word gospel, I don't know if you know this or not, but you need to have this little piece of the pie here. The word gospel means good news. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, there you have the definitive passage on the good news. Everything that is the gospel is, is defined. He defined the gospel as Christ dying uh, and being buried and rose, rising again according to the Scriptures. And that's the gospel. And the good news is, that's what the gospel means. The good news is the fact that Jesus came down and died for you and for me. He, he was buried, He rose again the third day, and now you can have a new life in Christ Jesus. And uh, he's talked about all the aspects of salvation now. And then finally coming down in verse 13, he says, Now whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in verse 14, here comes our four questions. Here's the first question he asked. And, and connected with salvation. Connected with you and me. Connected with a Gentile church. And I'll tell you right now, the only ones that can answer these four questions is a New Testament Christian, you and me. Here's the first question. How are they going to call? Oh, no, he just said, he just laid out this great thing about salvation. And then he says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, that's great. Praise the Lord. Amen. Then the question. But how are they going to call on him when they have not believed? Then verse 14, the second question. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? The third question in verse 14. And how shall they hear without a preacher? The fourth question in verse 15, And how shall they preach except they be sent? Now this is why when I started our study, this is why when I began to lay out the book of Acts, uh, when we went through the book of Acts, and then when we started the book of Romans, this is why I started with Acts chapter 8. When we got to Romans chapter 10, the first message I preached, I took you back to the book of Acts, and I showed you the model for New Testament soul winning in Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
And I began to show you the process all through these last couple of weeks that God has used and chosen to deal, uh, give His plan to, to mankind. And God could have the greatest plan of salvation ever, and of course He does. But if He has no vehicle to get it to man, then it's worthless. And realizing, uh, you know, the reality of the New Testament church and Bible Christianity uh, is why God has really saved you and why God left you in this mess after He saved you. I mean, let's face it. God could do whatever He wanted. God could have got us, as soon as we got saved, God could have took us right to heaven. Got us out of this mess. I would think personally that that would be a great motivator for a lot of people. I mean, if you know, you saw Charlie, and uh, you know, Charlie was an unsaved person, and uh, Charlie got saved over the weekend, and then you go to work on Monday morning, and somebody says, where's Charlie? He said, oh, he's gone. No, he got saved, and God took him out of this mess. Well, that would be, to me, not my human way of thinking, that would be a great motivator to get saved. I mean, wouldn't you like to go to a better place where you don't have to pay any taxes, don't have all the mess you're in, and just live blessed with God? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Why did he do it that way? God did it the way that he wanted to do it. A couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, Todd asked a really great question at Bible study. And he talked about, asked the question, in in essence, he asked about the purpose of our salvation, uh, why God saved us, other than the fact of just going to heaven. And I, 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 I thought that was a great, great question. And I think, you know, that that's really the question that he's talking about here in Romans this morning. You know, the Bible is a book of models. The Bible is a book of examples and examples. And, you know, obviously, there's all kinds of people in the Bible. All kinds of people in the Bible. You got David, you got Moses, you got Elijah, you got Paul, you got Timothy, you got Titus. You got everybody in the Bible who was a great model. But the problem with them is this. They may be great models and they may be great examples, but they're still all sinners. For the Bible to be a perfect book, God uses men and women for our models, but He also has to give us, if it's a perfect book with a perfect God, then He also has to give us a perfect model. You see, if only models we ever had of Christianity and living for God were unsaved people who got saved and then turned their life around but were still imperfect, we would always find an angle somewhere when God asked these questions. But when God gave us a perfect model and God gave us a perfect example of what your life and my life should be, He canceled out of ever wiggling out of these four questions. Because the perfect model that He gave us, the perfect model that He, he gave you and me, was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the perfect model that God gave to you and to me. Christ, the ultimate picture of our relationship. And, you know, if you ever deal with Jehovah Witnesses, here's what they'll tell you. Here's one of their big kicks. To me, I think it's ridiculous, but this is where they're at. Their big kick is simply this. How in the world, why would God separate? You know, they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that, we believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all one. They don't believe that. They believe that God was God, and someplace down the line, He created a lesser God, Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. They believe he's a lesser God. Now, if you and that you'll find out in the kingdom of the cults back there, by the way, your kingdom of the cult books are in. If if you would sit down with Jehovah Witness and you would say, Why don't you believe in the Trinity? Why don't you believe in the aspect of how this thing really lays itself out as far as the reality of what is going on? Here's what he tells you. Does it make any sense to you that a God would make another himself a, another person and then be subservient back to himself? 
he'd say, that doesn't make any sense. That'd be like your father stepping out and becoming his own son and then looking back at his own father, which is him, and then acting like a son, giving reverence to a father. He says, it doesn't make any sense. Well, obviously, it doesn't make any sense from a human standpoint. But when are you ever supposed to look at the Bible or God from a human standpoint? You know why God did that the way He did it? First of all, because that's what He wanted to do. But second of all, the reason why He did what He did, because He wanted to give you and I a perfect model of our relationship that we should have with the Father. So you know what He did? He did it Himself. God separated Himself out of the Godhead and became a son to Himself. And then He looked at the Father in a son relationship, and in that act He gave us the complete total understanding in a perfect sense of what our relationship should be. You know what the one number one thing that he gave us was? Obedience to the Father. How many times did he, he give himself over back to the Father and talk about, I've come to do my Father's will. I've come to do the work of my Father. What God did was separate himself out, even though he was very God. He had the ability to separate himself out. This is called the mystery of godliness in the Bible. And of course, that's one of the seven mysteries in the Bible, and no Jehovah Witness on the planet could ever figure those out. The mystery of godliness is one of the seven mysteries given to the church. That mystery contains the concept of how and why God the Father stepped out of himself, took on the form of a son, and then turned his obedience back to the Father in a father-son relationship, even though he was God the whole time. You know why he did that? For you and for me to have a perfect understanding of a relationship. Paul Harvey, I think he's dead now. But I always like to listen to Paul Harvey. And I remember about 20 years ago, I was listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. And it was around Christmas time. And he always, you know, he always had some really good biblical thoughts, concepts. And I really enjoyed listening to him. And he said he told the story at Christmas time, how that, uh, that uh, in this home there was a mom and a dad and two kids. And the dad was an atheist. Mom was a Christian, and the kids were Christians, and they went to church. Dad would never go to church. And here it was Christmas time, and mom and dad, uh, mom tried to get the dad to go to church for Christmas service, and the dad wouldn't go and have nothing to do with it. So they went off to church that, that uh, morning, and, uh, you know, dad got his coffee, and he's sitting out there looking out the window, very cold, very blustery winter day, you know. And he catches an eye of a little bird out there. And this little bird has got a broken wing. And this guy is watching this little bird, and obviously he knows that this bird is going to, uh, going to get eaten by a cat or it's going to freeze to death or whatever. And the guy becomes transfixed on that little bird and his problem. And the guy thinks, you know what? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll open the window and let that, get that bird, and at least maybe I can put him in a little cage and, and heal him and, and, and get him back where he can fly. And so he tried everything that he knew. He even tried throwing bread out. To the, to the little bird, and the bird would not move. bird wouldn't do anything. And the guy got so frustrated, and it was, it was kind of like he was so captivated by this little situation. And he's sitting there, and he's saying, man, you know, that bird's going to die. That bird is going to get eaten. That bird doesn't understand that I don't want to hurt it. I want to help it. That bird is going to need, how in the world can I get through to that bird? I mean, I've done everything. I, they like bread. I threw breadcrumbs. I opened up the window. So he would fly in. What can I do? How in the world can I tell that bird or get across to that bird that it's dangerous out there. It's okay in here. And for that little bird to come in. And suddenly, the Holy Spirit of God said, you know what? You know how you can, the only way you could do it 
The only way you could communicate to that bird that everything out there is dangerous and everything in here is, is safe is to become that little bird yourself. And just about the time he thought that, he heard the church bells ring. And the Holy Spirit of God took that little, little story. And the Holy Spirit of God said, you know what? That's exactly what I did for you. You would have never understood. God could have never got us to understand anything about salvation. He could have never gotten his message to us. God is some blight, blind, blinding light that would have scared the fire out of everybody and we'd have run for cover. This great rolling thunder of a voice, the Bible says, like many waters thundering, and we would run, we would panic, we would be everything away from God, and God says, I can't do it that way. So if I want to get my message to mankind, I have to become one of them. And just like the man couldn't reach that bird without becoming a bird, God could never reach us without becoming man. And in that story, the man fell on his knees, accepted Christ as his own personal Savior. It's a true story. And in your life and my life, that's how we can be saved. We understand and we know that God transformed himself into, a, into, into the Son of God. He took on the form of a servant. The Bible says he would, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh, the Bible says. And that's what he did for you and for me. And that's the concept. That's the model for us in our sonship. The obedience to the work of the Father. Did you ever wonder why the first coming of Christ really went the way it did? I mean, Jesus called his 12 apostles. You know, the word apostle means one sent. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that the apostles were the foundation of the church. Nobody knew it at the time. But looking back in retrospect and understanding once he wrote the book of Ephesians after Israel's rejection, they were the foundation of the church in God's mind. God gave them the gospel of the kingdom. And then he said unto them, go to all the world. And he, he told them, we, we, we told them, he says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Wherever you go, he says, you use the signs that I've given you and you give them the gospel. And that gospel was the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. But he said this in John chapter 14, verse 12, and I've never forgot it. And it bothered me for many, many years to have figured it out. And then he said this to them. He said, greater things will you do than I will do. I remember as a young Christian coming across that verse, scratching my head and saying, now what does he mean by that? How in the world am I going to do greater things than Jesus Christ did? Almost sounds blasphemous. It almost sounds sinful to think or sinful to say. But I didn't say it. Jesus said it. He said to his 12 apostles, he says, greater things will ye do than I do. Then I began to understand as I put the Bible together. God called his 12 apostles. He gave them the gospel of the kingdom to take to Israel. But once Israel began to reject, and they reject John the Baptist, and they crucified Jesus Christ. And then you that know your Bible, they rejected the final time in Acts chapter 7. And then we go from the book of Acts into the book of Romans as God moves from the nation of Israel into the Gentile church. And Christ goes back to heaven in Acts chapter 2. I've often looked at that and I thought to myself, what is the deal? I mean, I read in the Bible where the Bible says that once he died and, and, and come from the dead, that he led captivity captive. That meant get everybody out of the Old Testament, Abraham's bosom taken to heaven. I read over there where the Bible says that once he died and he, he rose again, he had the keys of death and hell. He had the victory because he died, was buried, and rose again, you and I never have to worry about death again once you become a child of God. 
The victory's ours. And I would think to myself, man, right then, the devil's been defeated. God's got the keys of death and hell. Christ is now ready to take over. Man, he's going to lead the way. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as the war. We're going to follow Jesus all down through history. And once he got the whole thing set to get the world, he went back to heaven and left me here. Doesn't sound like a good plan to me. I mean, I'd have much thought it would have been better if he'd have stayed here and said, okay, guys, let's go kick the fire out of them. He didn't. Why did he go back to heaven just when everything was ready to go? The devil had been defeated. He's got the keys of death and hell. The Old Testament saints are out of Abraham's bosom. I mean, it is a clear field of fire to go and do the work of God and get this thing going. In my mind, I would have thought he would have just been better for him to stay down here and lead us and let's just move on. That was not his plan. That was not his plan. You ever notice, and I talked about this the other Thursday night, you ever notice this, that in three and a half years of his public ministry, he travels no more than probably 60 or 80 miles in all of those three and a half years? Yet he tells us to go to the world. You know that Jesus, in those three and a half years, you ever stop thinking about this? He's in the Middle East. He's not 60 or 80 miles out of any one point where he was born. In those three and a half years, he's talking about winning the world to Christ. But he never went to South Africa. He never went to Europe. He never reached North America. He never went to England. He never went to Iceland or Greenland. He never went to Australia. He never went to the Solomon Islands. He never went anywhere other side that little, degree, that little 60, 80 miles. He never did. He never did. And when you realize, now I'm going to talk to you in a couple of weeks. As we move on down through here, I'm going to talk to you in a couple of weeks why he didn't go there at the time, better yet, why he didn't need to go there then as things are progressing through the Bible. And I'm going I'm to show you something that's quite incredible, and I'm going to use it to set up to kick off our concept of the gospel and the stars. But I'm going to do it on a Saturday, Sunday morning, right in here, when I'm going to show you why he didn't do that. It's an incredible concept. When you understand what I'm ready to say, when you understand this incredible concept of what I'm leading up to, it will change your whole outlook and it'll change your perspective of everything about you. Romans chapter 10 verses 14 and 15 shows us that God saved you and me to do for him what he would have done if he had stayed on earth. But he gave, he chose rather to go back after being here for 40 days after he, he in Acts chapter 1, after he'd been here and resurrected. He, he, he chose to go back and he chose to give me his spirit. He chose to give me and you the word of God. And then he tells us to take his place as the Son of God. That's why the Bible says that every day, right now, you need to be more like him. When you got saved, the purpose of God saving you wasn't just so he could take you to heaven. That's the better part of the deal. But the bottom line is, he wants you and I to recognize why he did what he did the way he did it. He wants you and I to recognize that now he gave you his spirit and made you a son of God. He gave you his mind, the word of God. He gives you the power through the Holy Spirit of God to do the work. And that's when he said to the apostles, greater things will you do. He's talking in a sense because he's going back to heaven and he expected you and me once we got saved, not just to stand on the promises, not sitting on the premises. We're to take the word of God and go do something with it because we as a son of God, are the very replacement for the Lord Jesus Christ when he went back to heaven. 
How does he want man to hear? How does he want man to hear to get the gospel? He wants it through you and me as his replacement. That's why the Bible says that you and I are to grow up into a perfect man. That's why the Bible says that every day we ought to be more like Christ. Every day of your life, you ought to work and have a protracted, uh, a protracted uh, schedule that you, you every day, you look, you're a little bit more like Him. Every year, you're a little bit more like Him. Every day, you start looking at things more like Him, less like the world. God wants to form you up. Ever, let me ask you a question. If in 33 A.D., God manifesting himself as the Son of God could change the world in just three and a half years. And he did. The world has never been the same since Jesus showed up at the first coming of Christ. Now, I'm one of these guys that I don't have a lot of tolerance for, for these skeptics about God and the Bible. I'm a skeptic too. I'm just not a skeptic about God and the Bible. I'm a skeptic about everything else in life. But I don't have a lot of time and a lot of place about these guys. They're always questioning things of God. Let me say something to you, and I ain't going to get into it today, but by the time we get through our thing, I'll have it proven to you. I don't believe the Bible because the, by faith. This guy said one time, well, you just believe the Bible by faith. You're an idiot. I don't believe the Bible by faith. Maybe some of you do. If you do, I feel sorry for you. I don't take the Bible by faith. I believe the Bible because the Bible can be proven as the absolute perfect Word of God scientifically beyond any shadow of any doubt. I don't take it as some blind fool out there just following Jesus. I take it as an intelligent, kind of intelligent, 20, 21st century man who has viewed the facts, understand what the Bible says, realize the science that's involved, realize the mathematics that's involved, realize the trigonometry that's involved, the geometry that's involved, and understand that that Bible is the Word of God, not because somebody gets up there and says, oh, it is, just believe it, just believe it. I can prove it to you scientifically without any problem whatsoever. So I'm not big on this. Well, you just believe all that by faith. No, I believe it because I can go back in history and the Bible says that when he was here, he changed the world. And there's no man on earth that can satisfactorily explain to me the changes that took place on planet earth when one man showed up. When Buddha showed up, it was like a bug on the windshield. Not matter. When Jehovah's Witnesses showed up, it didn't matter. When Confucius and, and all the rest of them showed up, it didn't matter. When he showed up, it changed the world. Changed it four ways. And this is where I hang my hat. I don't know about you. And I don't claim to be the smartest man in the world, never have, but I am the fastest one in the slow class. You know how the world was changed in the first time? I'll tell you. Bible says in Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 7, it says a day was declared. Up to that point, there was no day set aside. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 20, the Bible says they met the first day of the week. And that fixed it. Not just in Jerusalem, not just in Antioch. 2,000 years later, people take for granted, why does the world worship God on the first day of the week? I'll tell you why. Because that was the day it was said back there when the world got changed. Oh, I know. You got some seven-day disadvantages to like to meet on Saturday night. 
That doesn't change the fact that the whole world, the whole world, the whole world recognizes Sunday, first day of the week, because it was said so in the Bible when he changed the world. I'll tell you the second way it changed. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It says a name was given. Bible says there's no other, no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. No, no other name. That, that is the highest name, the only name, the only name above every other name. You know how I know that the Bible is true and Christianity is true and God's true? I don't get it from reading the Bible. I get it from unsaved people. Unsaved people, whether you know it or not, you know it's all your perspective. Unsaved people, the greatest, they may not want to be, may not even know they are. But unsaved people, the crowd that you hang out with or you work with, boy, you talk about a great soul winning tool. The greatest witness of this planet that Jesus Christ was who he said he was is unsaved men and women. You know why? Because do you ever get a good cussing out in Buddha? Did anybody ever say, boo to you? Or blank boo to this? You ever get a good cussing out in Confucius' name? How about Muhammad? Why, when they want to pick, uh, when they want to, uh, an unsaved man wants to lend authority to what he says, that he wants to act like he's really saying something, he has to add the adjectives and bring in the greatest name that the world has ever seen to bring his authority. And why is it none of the other religious men? Why is it always Jesus Christ? Why is it always God damning it? Why doesn't he say, Muhammad damn you? Doesn't quite have the same ring, does it? Why is it always Jesus? Why is it always God? Why when every man wants to say something uh, in an unsafe state, why does he always bring God's name into it? I had an atheist one time I was debating, and the atheist lost a temper, and he cussed me out, and I said, well, thank you for that testimony. You claim not to believe in God. You claim there is no God, but when you want to lend authority to me and dress me down, you got to call on the very name of the God. If there is no God, why are you using his name in vain in what you say? You know why? Because there's no other name given among heaven among men. And when he showed up that first time, it changed the world. Jesus Christ was introduced into the vocabulary of every nation on this planet and saved people, brought it up in praise, unsaved people, Bring it up in their everyday filthy language to add authority and weight to what they say. You know why? Because there ain't any higher name. Thank you for that testimony. If I worked at work, if I worked with some of you, somebody come up and he said, God damn it, I'd say, thank you for that testimony, brother. What testimony? The fact that God's going to damn the whole world someday at the great white throne judgment. You must be a believer. I ain't no blankety blank believer. Well, you must be. You're using, you're, using, you're using the highest name, and you even got it biblically correct. <laughs> There's no greater name than his name. There's no greater name to me as my Savior, and there's no greater name that any unsaved man or unsaved woman will use in the spit of despair, in the spit of anger, in the middle of all the contention things that goes on in this life. They'll spit out his name. Because there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And an unsaved man, you ever look what an unsaved man does in hell? An unsaved man in hell, and it's found in the Bible. 
It's found in the death of Christ, and it's found in the book of Psalms. An unsaved man in the Bible, and he's down there in a lake of fire, and he's down there burning, and he can look up, and he can see God and all that's going on up there. It's the, he says the same thing then. In other words, when we talk about God, we talk about it from our perspective going to heaven. When an unsaved man talks about God, he just talks about his perspective of going to hell. I had a friend of mine, he's pastoring up in Mount Pillar, Vermont. Oh, Jim Lake. Jim Lake was a character. Jim Wake was a nurse's assistant back in Ohio. Me and him were buddies for years and years and years. And he used to witness to all the doctors in the hospital. And he had a couple of doctors there that just, just gave him tough times all the time. And they were in surgery one time. This guy was shot or whatever happened. They brought him in. And the surgeon, the guy kept hemorrhaging and things like that. Jim was assisting him. And he knew Jim was a Christian. And a, and a, and a guy kept using God's name in vain every time another hemorrhage blew out, you know, and the guy was going to die. And he's cussing and this and that and saying, nah, 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 and then finally he's saying, God damn it, God damn it, God damn it. Finally looks over to Jim and he says, Jim, he said, you're supposed to be a Christian. <clears throat> Why don't you pray for God to help me with this thing? And old, old Jim said, he said, I am. He said, I'm asking God to bless it and you're asking God to damn it. We're caught in the middle here. I think that'd be a funny place to witness. And I'd be sure the guy at the table probably said, would you guys knock off this witnessing thing and fix my hemorrhaging? Tell you the third thing. A book was written. A book was written. We don't have time this morning. You can go back through history. The rise of nations. The rise of nations and the fall of nations depend on the King James Bible, stick to 11. There's no other book that impacted the world. No other book has impacted the world like the Bible. There wasn't one book written by any man, any place, any group of men who ever surpassed the book that God wrote. And it has been put out for, for, for 2,000 years when it's finally completed. And it has been the book that everybody has looked to. It's the book that half the world loves, the other world hates. And it's the book that changed this world and you cannot get around it. You cannot get around it. No other name given among him. I'll tell you something. See this book right here? You know how I know God's true? 500 songs in here about one man. 500 songs in here about one man. I could go down to the Christian bookstore and I could probably buy five or six more hymnals with 500 more songs and it don't match up to these. Show me one book that Buddhists have that have one song book in it that has 500 songs about Buddha. Show me one song book that Mohammedans have that has 500 songs about Muhammad. There was something different about Christ. And when he come to this planet, it changed this planet. And the fourth one, a year was given. I love it. You can't even go back in history at UMKC or Wheaton College or wherever you want to go, Ohio State University, any secular school. When they talk about time, history before and history after, it's always, it's always B.C., before Christ. Why isn't it B.C., before Muhammad? Why isn't it before Confucius? Why isn't it before Joseph Smith? Why is it history is compared to before the birth of Christ? Why does all history break in the middle at his birth? I'll tell you why. Because he changed the world. And then from that point on, it's called A.D. And everybody means that means after death. And of course, that's not true. A.D. is Latin for what it means in the year of our Lord. You know what that means? That means once he showed up, they started counting the years till he was coming back. <laughs> Faith! Faith! 
Blind faith? You're an idiot. I believe it because when he came to this planet and he came to this world, he changed the world and it was never the same again. Now let me ask you a question. If in 33 AD God manifesting himself as the Son of God could change the world in just three and a half years, what should 100 million Christians do to this planet that are alive today? Come on. Come on. You and me saved, transformed into his image, the Son of Christ, made the image of Christ, filled with his Holy Spirit. Complete the process. God gave you his mind. He gave you his power. He gave you his ideas. He gave you his concepts. He gave you his thoughts. He gave you his opinions. And then he turns you loose in the world. If one man, and hey, he doesn't have any more of the Holy Spirit of God than you and I have. He has no more power than you and I have. He has no more mind than you and I have. We have it right here. There is absolutely no difference between him and me and you. How come one man can change the world and a hundred million of us today can't do squat? Boy, that's a question that's going to have to be answered. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16? A question. Who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? That's the question. How do you and I as a child of God know the mind of God that God can instruct us in what he wants us to do? Well, the answer is in the last part of that verse, but we have the mind of Christ. You see, God wanted you and me to take his place. God wanted you and me to to, to do what he went back to heaven and never finished. He wanted you and me filled with the same spirit, filled with the same mind, filled with the same power. Filled with the same transforming life that you and I have the ability to live above the circumstances. To do what's right and, and, and to be separated from the world. He fixed everything about us internally and outwardly. That we don't have to be part of the world unless we just don't want to do what he wants us to do. How do they hear? How do they get a chance to call upon God? And how do they believe God sends them a preacher, you and me. A man or woman who replaces Christ on this earth as a Christian. You know the Christian word Christian, it means little Christ. There's two terms that we have in our church here that will never change because they were not given to us in a, in a good connotation. Back in the early days with the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, they had 6,000 gods. And there's 6,000 gods for everything. And uh, they looked at Christ when he came and Christ when he died. And they looked at all that, that these Christians running around who were doing all the things that they were doing. And they thought because they only had one God that it was a poor man's religion. They looked at their own religion with all their 5,000, 6,000 gods and they looked at what was now new, Christianity, and they only served one God. And to them, their concept was, this is ridiculous. Why would, why would 6,000 gods, wouldn't that be better than just one puny little God? I mean, that was their reasoning. That was the way they thought. Of course, once the Christians started telling them, well, our God lives inside us because theirs were in temples. Theirs were everywhere, beautifully, the Lord temple. They would go into the temple, and they would say, where's your God? He says, oh, he lives inside me. Oh, he says, 
And your God is Christ? Yes. And you're, he lives inside you? Yes, that's correct. Oh, then you must think of yourself as just a little Christ. Yes, that's correct. Oh, then you're a Christian, see. The other great term that we have is Baptist. Now, I know a lot of guys take Baptist off their church because they're ashamed of Baptist. I'm ashamed of most Baptists too, but I'll not take Baptist off my name. I, I think that the word Baptist we got because of our enemies who hated us because of the greatest doctrine we stood on, and that was the doctrine against infant baptism and baptism regeneration. See, before, around the 12th, 13th century, it was called Pedro Anabaptist, against children's baptism. And then later on it became Anabaptism, against baptism. And then they dropped the Anna, and now we were just Baptist. So I'll keep it. I'll keep it. Yeah, I know there's a lot of idiots out there. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What, what, what would you call it that you wouldn't have idiots in time? Idiot-free Baptist church? You'd still have idiots in time. So you, 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 I'll just stick with it. And I, I'll just tell people what kind of Baptist I am. And then when you tell them what kind of Baptist you are, they really want nothing to do with you. But that's okay. See, works out just fine for me. Just fine for me. A man or woman who replaces Christ on this earth as a Christian. Christ living inside you. God lets you stay here and to finish the work that he started. And then he turned it over to the church. Let me ask you a question. If you're a businessman, and many of you are, if you have a business and the moment you leave the job site or you leave the office that a party breaks out and no work gets done, would you be happy with that? How do you think God feels the moment he went back to heaven, 95% of the Christians said, let's have a party and are not doing the work today? I mean, it's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. Greater things will you do than I'll do, Jesus said. You know, one way or the other, I preached in almost every state in this country. I've been in and I preached in Russia, Central America, South America, South Africa, Central Africa, Germany, France, Hungary, Romania, the Philippines, Korea, uh, just about every place I can think of. And I'm a nobody. I'm an absolute nobody. And I thought to myself, you know, Christ, Christ never got there. He never preached in Africa, South Africa, Australia, uh, Central America, South America. He never got there. But then I thought to myself, yes, he did. He got there through me. Christ will never get to preach in your neighborhood unless you take him in. Christ will never get to preach in your office or where you work unless you take him to work with you. He'll never get to reach and do what he wants to do unless you allow him in with you. And that's the greatest aspect that you could ever think of in your life. God saved us for a purpose. There was a methodology to his plan of salvation. I've told you before that when God went back to, God's son went back to heaven, he replaced himself with three things. He replaced himself, first of all, at the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit of God. By 90 A.D., he had replaced himself with a second thing, which is the Word of God, when John writes the last things in the Bible. And then when you come to the end of the book of Acts, you find that he replaced himself with a third thing, the local church. You ever put those three things together? He replaced himself with three things. It took three things, three things, for God's Son to replace himself with in you and me because he had a job he wanted me and you to do. The first thing was the Holy Spirit of God. You have to have the Holy Spirit of God because God's got a plan for you. How's he going to instruct you without being inside you to give you exactly what he wants you to have. So he gave you the Holy Spirit of God, the power that you need to have. But that wasn't enough, was it? Because you need a road map. He may, he may give you the Holy Spirit of God, but if he doesn't have a set of instructions and a road map to show you where to get where you need to go, you ain't going anywhere. So you know the next thing he gave you? He gave you his Bible, his mind. 
Now you have the Holy Spirit of God and you have a road map to know where God wants you to go. You know what I do in this church? It's the only thing I really do. I do it a lot of different ways. I do it a lot of different times and a lot of different ways and I say a lot of different, I say a lot of the same thing a lot of different ways because I've learned over the years that's the best way to communicate. But the bottom line is, all I'm trying to get you to do, all I'm trying to get you to do is understand that God saved you for a purpose, that Holy Spirit of God is your guide and that Word of God is your roadmap. But you see, that still ain't going to do any good because you can have the guide and you got to have the roadmap, but you need a way to get to where you want to go. So God replaced himself with the third thing, the local church, the vehicle by which you get where God wants you to go. See our job now? See my job? My job is to get you saved, get the Holy Spirit of God recognized inside you of what he really is, your teacher, your trainer, your lead, and your guide. Then get you the roadmap, show you that the Bible is the roadmap, the Holy Spirit of God's going to trace out in your life where he wants you to go. But then I got to get you there. And the way you get there to the local church, how shall they be sent? You see, we get the idea that preachers stand behind the pulpits on Sunday and missionaries go to foreign fields. And that's backwards. If you're saved here this morning, one, you're a preacher, and two, you're a missionary. And this church sends you out every Sunday morning, or every Monday morning. Every Monday morning, we send you out to the mission field. Every Monday morning when you go back to work, this afternoon when you go to your neighborhood, or you go to your friends, wherever you go, God has sent you out from this church as a missionary, as a preacher. People thank me all the time, and I, I do appreciate it, and I, I, and I take it in the spirit that it's certainly given. But there hardly isn't a week goes by that somebody doesn't pull me aside, and you know that we're, we, you've seen your family grow, and you've seen your, some people in your family saved, and, and you know, and, and, and there is a lot of work involved with it, but, uh, it, you know, and, and the times we spend together in the Bible where some of you have just grown incredibly in the last three or four years, People pull me aside and they'll say, Bob, I want to thank you for all that you've done for me. They'll say, Bob, I just want you to know I really appreciate it. I just, want to, I just wanted to take the time to thank you for all that you did for me, for helping me with the Bible, for getting my so-and-so saved, or for doing this, or for doing that, or working with my kids, or helping my kids with their marriage. I just want you to know I really appreciate it. I want to thank you. I'll look you right back in the eye and say, don't thank me, pal. I got an ulterior motive. You think I helped them with their marriage because I'm just a nice guy? I'm not. You think I helped them get saved just because I'm a nice guy? I'm not. You think I did all that I do and all this around here just because I'm Mr. Jellybean, just a nice, cool guy that goes around doing nice things for nice people? I didn't. I did everything I did because I expect something out of them. I do everything I do because you and I owe God a debt. You and I need to understand that when you got saved and you got your life, took it out, I may have been the one to help you. Somebody else may have been the one to help you. We may spend hours in your life. But if you think we did it just because we're a bunch of good old boys down here that just do good things, you got the wrong thing. We want something back out of you. I don't want to help you get your life turned together so you can go on in your meaninglessly, purposeful life. I want you to get your life straightened out and get everything on power in your life so you can do what God has called you to do when he went back to heaven and saved you to do it. That's why when I give those Bibles out, I'll be right up front with you. Hey, you know what? I'm about ready to ask for a couple of them back too. I give them out and I'll tell you, I'm going to give you this Bible. You know what? It's yours. As long as you're going to use it and you're going to serve God and you're going to do what's right. You don't want it? Give it back. I'll give it to somebody else that does. I'm not wasting that kind of stuff on you. This church pays for those Bibles. Your tithes pays for those Bibles. It's part of the ministry and the outreach of this church. I'm not going to squander it away. 
Remember one stupid guy one time, he was sending Bibles into prison. And, he, and the prisoners kept writing him back, saying, send us more Bibles, send us more Bibles. And he thought a great revival was going on. They weren't. They were passing them out, taking the pages up, rolling them up for cigarettes to smoke. Don't you tell me about human nature. Everything I do, I'm going to tell you right now, it ain't that I don't love you. You know I love you. I'd die for you. If we had a war and we were in a battle someplace, I'd take almost every one of you in my foxhole. No problem at all. If we were on a boat someplace going somewhere and a ship got torpedoed or hit an iceberg or whatever case it is, I watch too many movies, you know that already. And, and if ship is sinking and everybody else is in a lifeboat and I say to so-and-so, where's Tom or where's Joe or where's Ralph or where's Mark or where's Mary, where's so-and-so? If you were down there and John, if the sink ship was sinking and you were down there and John suddenly said a big beam fell on John's leg and he can't get out. And I, and I go down and I say, John, I say, well, you, you say, you can't, Bob. Just get out of here. You just get out of here. You've got to leave me. Well, I'm just going to, that's okay. You're going to leave me. You think, I, I, you know what I do? I couldn't leave him. I just couldn't. I'd stay down there with him and we'd drown together. I mean, I, I, how do you leave? How do you do it? I mean, you, everybody else is in the boat. I'm going to say, well, gee, John, nice knowing you. Thanks a lot, pal. Boy, I tell you what, you've been faithful to me and faithful to God. Ooh, water's getting kind of high. I got to go. <laughs> here, I'll tell you what, John, the best I can do for you, here's a straw. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. You know what? I love you. But I have a purpose behind my love for you. It's because I want you to do. I want you to see. I want you to understand why God saved you. I want you to see that you and me have replaced him. We don't have time to fool around and just dilly bop around like we got the rest of our lives. It's the urgency of the hour. Jesus is coming. People need to be saved. Christianity is not getting it done. Don't let us be that in that same crowd. God's plan on this planet Earth, found within God's eternal Bible, God allowed you and me to be born when we were born. He put you and me in the right place, gave you the right parents, good or bad. Put people in your life at the right moment. And then he revealed himself to you. And then when you got saved, he gave you exactly what you needed to get the book. He gave you the right church. He gave you the right purpose. He gave you everything you needed. He put the right people in your life. Nothing in your life has been by accident, but rather by God's design. Oh, I know we've made our mistakes, but God even takes the mistakes that we make and turns them around to push us in the right direction. If we just grasp the concept that we're here left down here after we're saved because we got a job to do as his replacement. That's why when you get saved, God gives you a whole new purpose. As you understand that purpose and we help you get to that point in the life, you'll understand what that purpose turns into a plan. Once you understand God's purpose, you understand God's plan, and you begin to get God's perspective. Once you see God's purpose and God's plan and you get his perspective, it turns into God's passion. And once you get the purpose and you get the plan and you get the perspective, you get the passion, it turns into God's power. God wants you to do what he wants you to do. Boy, you know what? You take that concept and take that thought and put it into your world right now and just where you're at. If what we're saying is true and what the Bible's saying is true, you know what? And you know as well do it. I'm not saying that we're the only church out here doing the job. You know I'm not saying that. But you go try to find you another one that preaches the Bible and believes the Bible. You know what that says? You know what that tells me? That tells me that if God could have dumped you anywhere, God could have put you off into a Methodist church or some dead Baptist church, God could have left you in the 
slime pit you were in. He, he, he pulls you out and he brought you here where the Bible's taught, where the Bible's believed, where everything we do is trying to be focused on what God wants us to do. And you are just in spite of that, in his hand in your life, in his orchestrating the events and doing the things that get you here. You're just going to sit here like it's any other church. My God, what's wrong with God's people today? He could have put you out someplace where you would have never heard there was a true word of God. He didn't. He put you here. And I'm going to tell you this. To whom much is given, much is required. Is my temple, that thing booming out there? Oh, I like when it does that. Got a camera phone. If I come back that side, get me a couple shots of it. See, the answer to those four questions can only be answered by you and me. How are they going to call on him if we don't tell them? How are they going to believe if we don't show them? How is every, how are they ever going to hear the gospel, the good news, without a preacher? And how will you and I ever fulfill all that God has ordained us to do to bring forth fruit and our fruit should remain if we're not willing to go? You know what my perspective of the judgment seat of Christ is? My perspective is this. We are all so satisfied with the way we are. We get so lackadaisical in our aspect of God and the church and what God has called us to do. And maybe not so much you because you're here. But boy, you look across Christianity, my friend, and I'm telling you, there is an apathy. There's a lethargic attitude. No urgency that everybody is just playing the game. Nobody understands what I've told you this morning. And the ones that hear it don't care. One of these days when the rapture takes place. My perspective of the judgment seat of Christ is in a heartbeat, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. We stand at the great Bema seat, the great judgment seat of Christ. And there, in an instant of time, in a split second, we fully understand everything. I mean everything that God did for you. I mean you feel every pound of that nail in his hand and his feet. You feel every biting of his back with the cat and nine tails. You see the agony and, the, and all that he went through and all that he felt. And you realize that it was your name that he had on his lips just like Danny sung this morning. And you realize all that he did. And then in a flash, you see everything in your life. How he orchestrated. How he maneuvered. How he put people in your world. How he got you to, the, to be saved. How he got you to this church. How he gave you what you needed. How he gave you all the classes and Bible study. that you could figure everything out that God wanted you to know. And suddenly you're going to realize that in all of your life, after all that he did, and now you totally realize and understand it, you're going to realize that you wasted your life. You took what he gave you, what he did for you, and what he prepared for you, and you squandered it. You, you gave it away. And I guarantee you, my friend, in that day, there'll be people falling on their knees, begging God to go back, to just give them, now that they understand, now that they grasp it all, now that they have a perspective and realize all that God intended and all that He done. Oh, dear God, just give me five minutes, ten minutes, two minutes. Just give me 30 seconds. 
Let me go back and do a little. And there will be no going back. You can know everything that you're going to know then. Right now, today. In your hymnal. On page 418. Great songwriter by the name of Charles Luther. Wrote one of the greatest songs that I think that dispel and despair the judgment seat of Christ. And that great song's title is simply this. Oh, must I go and empty-handed. Must I go and empty-handed. Thus my dear Redeemer meet. Not one day of service give Him. Lay no trophy at His feet. Must I go and empty-handed. Must I meet my Savior's soul? Not one soul with which to greet Him. Must I empty-handed go? And oh, my dear friend, if there's any song today that we ought to have burning in the whole of our heart, it ought to be that song that we don't go in on that day empty-handed. Not after what He's done for you and for me. Not after what He's given up. Not after you understand the events and all of the things that He's put in your life to get you because He desires that you take His place. When I was a young man, I've, I've never been what I'd call a, a great soul winner. I've tried to win people to Christ whenever God put me in the place. And every day of my life, I say to God when I start out my morning, God, you drop me into wherever, whatever LZ landing zone you want me to be in. You just drop me on the ground and I'll do my best to do the job for you. I tell him that every morning. But I remember as a young kid back in 1972, and this was all new to me too. I heard one of the greatest preaching messages I've ever heard in my life by one of the greatest preachers, Howard Sears. He's long dead now. He was out of Greenville, South Carolina. And a whole Howard Sears had a brother, Victor Sears, and both of them were great preachers. But Howard Sears was one of the greatest preachers I ever heard in my life. He had the ability that when he preached, you know, when I heard him, he was probably 70 years old. And I would say today, you know, looking closer to 70 than I did back then, I hope when I'm 70, I have the power that he had to preach. Boy, I mean, tell you what, when he said something and he wanted to make his point, it like a clack of thunder coming down through the auditorium. And I remember he preached that night and I was just a young kid. I had just given my life to God. I didn't know what all that meant. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I just know I had a burning desire in my heart that I wanted to serve God and I wanted to do what God wanted me to be. And oh, he preached a great message. He preached a message on soul winning. He preached a message on the burden we ought to have for lost people. He preached a message that goes right in hand to hand with what we're talking about in Romans. And he preached it out of the great book of Psalms, chapter 142, verse 4. And the name of his sermon was, No Man Cared for My Soul. And boy, he preached that thing and he started by reading Psalms 142, verse 4. And he says, you know what? He says, when you, go, when you stand, when you stand at the great white throne judgment and you have to look at your family and look at your friends and the people that you work with and the people that you were ashamed to let them know you were a Christian, 
people that, that would, would probably went to heaven if you would have done what God wanted you to do. And he went on and on and on. And he said, you know what? He says people think that, that in hell, uh, you know, the greatest cries are going to be in the lake of fire when men anguish. And he went back to Psalms where, where Jesus on the cross portrayed a man in hell when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he laid out and portrayed how that, uh, you know, that, that unsaved men are going to scream that. That, the, that, the, that the Luke chapter 16, the rich man wanted just water on the tip of his finger to his tongue. When he, when he went all through there, this cries, the screams through eternity, he says, we think that's going to be the greatest, most terrible thing we ever hear. But he says, that's not true. He says, the greatest, greatest cry and the most tragic cry and the thing that's going to haunt us down through eternity is the men and the women who are lost without Christ and eternal damnation because you and I, and he says, in that day, in that day, there will be men standing there, women standing there, your friends, my friends, family members, children, and they're going to say to themselves, I looked on my right hand and beheld, and there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man, no man cared for my soul. Brother, I'm telling you right now, you better grasp and you better get it. He saved you for a purpose. He saved you for a reason. He wants you to get his passion. He wants you to get his perspective. And he wants you to understand that you and I take the place. And your job and my job is to be that preacher. Because how are they going to hear? How are they going to believe? How are they going to know unless somebody goes to them? That's our job. Don't ever let it be said. Don't ever, as best as you can, don't ever let it the great white throne judgment. Any man, any woman. Certainly not your own child. Certainly not your own family. Certainly not people that are close to you. Certainly not your own mom or dad. Don't let anybody in that day. They may go to hell. And they may spend an eternity there. But never, never let them point their finger at you and say, Where were you? No man. You, you didn't care enough for my soul. You knew the truth. Our job is to take his place. Well, tomorrow morning, this afternoon, but certainly by tomorrow morning, this church is sending you out on the mission field again. Oh, I'm not saying you got to go into the office and turn upside the water coolers and, and, and make a fool out of yourself. All I'm simply saying is, Take God with you when you go. Let the Holy Spirit of God go with you just as he was in the Lord Jesus Christ in those three and a half years. Take his mind with you and his spirit so he can lead and guide you and give you everything you need to say in every given situation you're in. But realize, every saved person in this room, realize you're a missionary and you're a preacher. Jim, you've got a great opportunity. I know you're young and all this, but you know what? It doesn't matter. And I want you to know personally, I'm going to pray for you every day. This church is, right now I'm telling you, I'm sending you out to be our missionary to Afghanistan. I'll give you every book, every Bible, every CD you need. You have the opportunity, even though you're young at this and you're just new getting this all figured out again, you know what? God will use you. He'll use you. And we're going to pray for you. See, we send one to Afghanistan. I send some of you out to Ford tomorrow. 
Send you some of you downtown tomorrow. Some of you out selling cars tomorrow. Selling insurance tomorrow. Some of you over working at the hospital tomorrow. Some of you are going to work your shift even tonight as nurses. We're sending you out. We're sending you out because we need to be the replacements for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father,